1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, this is what the Word of God has to say. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there are few subjects that are more fraught with difficulty than the issue that this text, this text addresses. In our cultural context, it feels awkward at best and dangerous at worst uh, to declare what women should wear, to stand up here and make pronouncements about what the, the hairstyles that, that women should adorn themselves with, and, and, and even more so to use the word submissive and to read the words, be quiet. <laughs> I was saying to somebody before I, getting ready to preach, I said, anytime you use the word submissive and you tell somebody to be quiet, you ought to be ready for a fight. Uh, because they're, they're, they're all, particularly in our cultural context, uh, those are not well received. The awkwardness of the cultural context does not release us, however, from preaching such passages and certainly not from obeying what this passage teaches. To faithfully preach the Bible, a, a pastor, an elder must proclaim what the Bible teaches regardless of how well it is received by the culture of the moment. God's Word is true. Yesterday, today and tomorrow. And so we preach the word faithfully trusting in its truthfulness. Everybody struggles with this. In last month, uh, our, the United States Congress, particularly the Senate, passed a resolution. It was, uh, it was a resolution uh, titled, Clarifying the Dress Code for the Floor of the Senate. If you've been keeping up with, uh, with the news, there was a particular senator who who embarrassed the other senators by the, the casual attire that he chose to wear on the floor of the Senate. And so the, the United States Senate did something very unusual in this modern context. Today is very polarized politically, and, and uh, we don't tend to agree on anything. But in September of this year, the United States Senate passed a resolution unanimously. There's very few things it does unanimously. But it passed a resolution, very simple, one paragraph that defined the dress code for the floor of the Senate. And it said that senators will wear business attire on the floor of the Senate. And it went on to define business attire, but only for the men. Men are to wear coats and ties and slacks that are long, not shorts. But the Senate, it was a majority of men, decided maybe in their best interest not to define for their female colleagues what business attire is for women. They were too afraid to touch the subject. Paul barrels right through. And we're going to barrel right through this morning. Not because we're trying to attack some cultural dynamic today, but because we want to understand from a biblical point of view how we are to function within the church. The Word of God speaks both to men and to women. Now, before I go any further, I do want to at least acknowledge some dangers I see that affect how we preach this passage. The first would be uh, to, for preachers to boldly, confidently, harshly even, uh, speak and preach to, to brothers in Christ, but ignore the hard words when speaking to sisters in Christ. It's been my, uh, my it seems to me that uh, Father's Day sermons, at least in recent years, tend to be kind of hard-edged sermons. So men, you ought to do better, you ought to man up, you ought to be the men in your household, and, and, uh, and, and there's typically somewhat of a chastisement there that you need to do better than you've been doing. 
And conversely, Mother's Day sermons tend to be universally celebratory. Thank God for women and thank God for our mothers. Now, let's be honest. Men sometimes need to be chastised because of their sin. And women need to be celebrated because motherhood and women are a blessing to the church. But we need to also recognize that sometimes women sin too. And if a preacher is afraid to speak hard words to the sisters in the church, he does them no good. Uh, We need to be honest with one another, both the men and the women in the church, and confront sin wherever it is. Secondly, one of the second dangers I see here is when preaching a passage such as this one, there is a tendency to first look for how to make it easy to receive or to accommodate the cultural norms rather than faithfully teach and preach the text. So what I mean by that is there's, a, there's an impulse when you, when, you, when you deal with a passage like this, because of the awkwardness, because of the difficultness, the first thing you do is how can I make this more palatable for the hearers to hear? How can I fit this into a cultural acceptable way rather than starting with what does the text say? Now hear me very clearly. When I got up this morning, And I thought about preaching this passage. I knew it was coming. My first impulse this morning was not, how can I make everybody mad? (laughs) And how can I get the the ladies in the church so upset with me they run me out of town? That's not my impulse. However, when a preacher preaches a text, he cannot, he must not begin with, can I make this more easy to hear? He must start with, what does the text say? And preach that faithfully. And then a third danger I see here, and, and you all will recognize this when it is, it is rather common in our day today. And the third danger is to look for ways to reject the text entirely. And, and so because it has some hard words and because it's uncomfortable and awkward, some have said, I just don't like this text. I don't like what it says. I don't like the implications it has for the church. Let's just throw it out altogether. And maybe those are not the words that people will say, but this is what they might say. You might hear people say, well, I am a red-letter Christian only. What they mean by that is they're only going to take the, the, the words in Scripture that Jesus said. Now, that sounds spiritual, but it's dangerous. Because what they're saying is I'm declaring some of the Bible to be authoritative and some of the Bible not to be authoritative. Or they'll say, well, I reject all of Paul's writings because he was writing to a cultural context and, uh, and, and, and that no longer applies to us today. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. If you believe God created the heavens and the earth, you must also allow that he is able to preserve his word. And when we pick up our Bibles, we trust in the sovereignty of God from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the amen of Revelation for God to have inspired every last word. And when you begin to pick and choose what passages you like and don't like, it is a process that does not end. In fact, once you reject part of Scripture is uninspired, the end of that road is rejecting the entirety of Scripture. And I would just, I would just pose to you, consider the denominations and the churches of our day. Many of them began with rejecting this particular passage on the role of women in the context of public worship, and where they ended was a total rejection of the Word of God altogether. We cannot do that. We must not do that. So in this end of chapter 2, Paul now turns his attention to the proper order of the church. And in this text, he addresses the role of women, that the role of women have in the church, particularly in the church's public worship. And hear that phrase, because I'm going to say it over and over again, that we must make a distinction of what, where these restrictions happen and where these restrictions do not happen. The text addresses three areas for Christian women. How you present yourself in the public worship of the church, how you participate in the worship of the church, and how you honor God's design for women. And so that's how we're going to divide, divide our time together this morning. And so we'll begin with um, a, a being adorned with godliness. And I see that in just the first two verses, verses 9 and 10, being adorned with godliness. Paul begins in verse 9 by saying, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good 
works. Now I'm going to say something that I want you to hear me very carefully. This issue is an issue of the heart. That your heart's desire must be for God's worship. Now, the truth is, dress codes are constantly a source of conflict. If you are a school professional, you're an administrative of the, of the school, you're constantly dealing with dress codes. If you're an employer today, you're constantly dealing with dress codes. Even in the context of the church, we must deal with dress codes. They're, they're constantly changing and they're constantly in, in conflict. What is respectful and appropriate in the opinion of one is not and probably won't be shared by another. So Paul is giving instructions for what is proper adornment for, listen to me carefully here, public worship. What do you wear when you come into the house of the Lord together with the other saints to worship? The word that Paul uses is the word that is translated as to adorn, is actually cosmos. It's the word from which we get cosmetology or cosmetics. It simply means to call something to be beautiful by, by decorating, to, to beautify, to adorn, to decorate, to adorn. But notice Paul is not rejecting adorning yourself with beauty. No, no, Paul is, it calls Christian women to adorn themselves in such a way that honors the Lord. It's a heart issue. It's a focus issue. It's an attention issue. The second word that Paul uses that is helpful in understanding this passage is the word that is translated as respectable. Now, it, the word, when you say it out loud, it sounds like almost exactly like because it has the same root word as the word for adorn. But here it means pertaining to being in proper uh, uh, order or suitable in terms of being attractive. It actually, the word actually has a relationship to systems and even the word for world. Just proper order. And right. The point that Paul is making is that what you adorn yourself with should prepare you for and be in proper order for worship. When you got up this morning and whatever you put on and however you fixed your hair and anything else that you adorned yourself, was it for the purpose of being in the presence of God? Much of what is worn, and I put in parentheses in my notes, and not worn today, in public, is frankly an expression of rebellion. A lot of what is worn and not worn today is rejection of common decency. I've often made the comment, I wish I had not seen that in public. Often what is worn or not worn today is an elevation of personal rights to what, wear whatever you desire. It's not a good sign for just the cultural cohesion that culturally, society level, we no longer have the, the energy to enforce respectable, proper dress codes. Much of what is worn today is refusal to submit to any authority. How dare you tell me what I can and cannot wear. Even places like the United States Senate that has such great long-standing traditions about dress and dress code, even there they're struggling with defining and enforcing proper dress. Brothers and sisters, we're not the public sphere. We're not the floor of the United States Senate. We are the house of God. And when we gather here, we're not gathering for a lecture. We're not gathering here for a show. We are gathering here to praise and to worship the God of all creation. So what Paul is saying is when you adorn yourself, adorn yourself in such a way that is respectful and correct and right for the Lord. That when you come to worship, adorn yourself to be before the Lord, to honor the Lord in what is proper for the occasion of worship. You may have noticed that I have yet to give specifics. So I've not, I don't, in my notes, I don't have anything of how long your dress should be or, or how many uh, rings you should wear because you notice Paul doesn't give those specifics either. What you adorn yourself is not about what you wear, but why you wear what you wear. First, have a heart to adorn yourself properly to be in the presence of the Lord in worship. 
with modesty and self-control. Now, he moves on and he does give some particulars, not with. In fact, he gives some negatives here where he says, uh, uh, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And I would put that under the context of a response of love for the fellowship. So in the second half of verse 9, Paul gives some specifics about what you should, what should not be worn. Specifically, he calls out braided hair, gold pearls, and costly attire. Now context, I think, is very helpful in understanding what is rejected here. The issue the church was confronting was that some were coming to worship dressed in clothing and accessories that, one, flaunted their wealth, secondly, drew undue or inappropriate attention to themselves, and thirdly, had the effect of alluring sexual desire. The issue here is not hairstyles. So if you braided your hair this morning, that, that, that's not the specific issue here. And the issue here is not jewelry. If you're, if you're wearing a brooch or a, a necklace or jewelry on your finger, that's not particularly the issue here. And, and nor is it how much you actually paid for your outfit. I would, just, I would just say to you, brothers and sisters, depending on the context, what you wear may be expensive or poor depending on the people you're with. The issue is that when these things distract away from the worship of God, they become harmful to the fellowship. So when you think about how you present yourself in the context of the fellowship, have a response of love for the fellowship in such a way as not to be distracting away from proper worship. It was likely that some in the church could afford clothing that cost more than other members of the church entire yearly income. So they were coming to church with, with, with clothes on that, that not only ex, that, that exceeded the yearly income of somebody sitting beside them, and that was becoming an issue of distraction. It was likely that some were, were wearing accessories that were so grand and ostentatious that it, that it had the effect of distracting from worship. People were, were paying more attention to what was being worn than who was being worshipped. And it was likely that some were wearing clothes that were sexually alluring and, and drew ungodly attention from other brothers in the church. Your desire should be to honor God and to love the saints. Drawing inappropriate attention to yourself does not honor God and it works to hinder the saints. Being a distraction from worship does not honor God and it hinders the saints. Seeking to be immorally, sexually alluring is distracting and sinfully dangerous. Now, I want to say something about this. No one is guilty of another's sin. It is always inappropriate for someone to say to another, you made me do it. But I also think it needs to be said, you are responsible for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're dressing in such a way that is causing someone else to sin, just as an act of love for them, would you not dress in a way that is modest and respectful and proper for worship? What you wear and your participation in public worship of the church should honor the Lord and have the blessing of, and, and, and have the blessing of other saints in mind. A heart's desire for God's worship, a response of love for the fellowship. And thirdly, I would say here, a testimony of faith. Notice what he says there in, in verse 10 where he says, But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 10 is the godly contrast to the prohibitions of verse 9. How you present yourself in public worship is a testimony to what God has done in your life. Here's his point. If God's transformed your inside, it's going to have evidence on the outside. If God has transformed your heart to, to long to worship him above all other things, it's going to transform how you worship, how you participate in worship in the church. Let the transformation of the gospel be testified to by what you wear, by what you do not wear, by the jewelry you adorn yourself with and how you present yourself in the context of worship. The final two words of verse 2 point to the most significant adornment of any Christian woman 
and ultimately what is beautiful before the Lord. Paul says, with good works. Here's what I know. Hairstyles come and go. I can prove this pretty easy. If you've, if you've been married 50 years or longer, pull out your wedding album. <laughs> Hairstyles come and go. If you haven't been married 50 years, get your parents' wedding album out. And you may ask, Mom and Dad, what were you thinking? They were thinking they looked good. Wealth and fashion, wealth and the fashion that it can purchase will fade away. Whatever wealth you have today, someday will pass away. It will be no more. Regardless of how hard you work, the beauty of youth will give way to the evidence of age. But hear me carefully. The God-honoring beauty of good works lasts forever. The God-honoring beauty of good works never passes away. And the God-honoring beauty of good works never fades with age. Let your greatest adornment be good works before the Lord. Be adorned with godliness. Secondly, Paul then moves to specifically how women are to participate in worship. And I want to start with a positive because that's where Paul begins. You may have already run to the negative because that's culturally sort of where we've been trained to go. But I want you to notice in, in verse 11, Paul says, let women learn quietly. Now, your cultural training, your cultural impulse may see that as a negative, but Paul wrote that as a tremendous, a radically positive word. I would phrase that as women, sisters, you are to be active participants in worship. The most controversial part of this passage is verses 11 and 12. In the cultural context of our day, it's very poorly received that there would be any limitation on women at all. This is such a strong cultural impulse that, that many reject this passage without any explanation other than just a dissatisfaction with it. They don't like what this says. How, how dare any limitations be put upon women in any context? It is so, so offensive to the culture today that there are some today without any biblical defense, they just say, I don't, I don't, I don't believe this. Don't hold to this. Others uh, employ complicated textual gymnastics to explain away why this passage doesn't mean what it, what it means. But it's very simple. It doesn't need much theological investigation to understand, particularly verses 11 and 12. So first let me explain what this passage is not saying. This is instruction for the public worship of the church and specifically, listen to me carefully, specifically the preaching ministry of the elders. So what this is not saying is that women are a prohibition of women against speaking or singing as part of the congregational worship. So, women, when we sing the hymns, please sing. You bless the singing of the congregation when you sing. It's not a prohibition of making any vocalization or speech in the context of worship. And it's also, listen to me carefully, this passage is not a rejection or a prohibition from women using their gifts to, to teach in other arenas or contexts. It's primarily... The, the preaching ministry of the elders in the context of the worship of the church. Secondly, allow me to explain what it is saying. It is saying that women should be a part of the public worship. Hearing and, and receiving the, the preaching and the teaching ministry of the church. That's what's so radical about verse 11. 
So in the cultural context in which Paul was writing, women were not encouraged to participate in synagogue teaching. Now the Old Testament does not, makes no prohibition and does not restrict women from participating in synagogue worship. However, culturally, many rabbis would not teach women and thought that they were unworthy of instruction. So when Paul says, let women participate, let them learn, and there's an, this is a positive invitation. You're to be here. You're to participate. You're to be a part of the ministry of the church when we gather for worship. Before teaching and dealing with the negative, Paul affirms the positive that women are to be a part of Christian worship and should receive the preaching and teaching ministry of the pastor elders in the pulpit. So hear that first. Women hear, participate, learn, hear the word preached. You're to be a part of us when we gather. Galatians chapter 3 teaches that before God, Men and women are spiritually equal. I want to read this passage to you. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all those who are in Christ Jesus are to be present and to receive the ministry of the pastor, elder, preaching and teaching in the church. Be active participants in the worship of the church. Secondly, be submissive to proper authority. Now, if you want to start squirming, this is the spot where you start squirming. If Paul had simply written, let women learn, it may have been better received by our present culture. However, what Paul says next is what causes so much consternation today. He says, learn quietly. And if, and if just to make sure we didn't have enough uncomfortableness already, he said, learn quietly with submissiveness. And then he says, doubling down again, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. I remind you that Paul is speaking here of the public worship of the church Therefore, this would not apply to other arenas and other areas like government or, or employment. The submissiveness required is not to cultural norms or man-made structures. That's important. The submissiveness here that Paul is talking about is not to cultural requirements or man-made structures. The submissiveness here that is required is to God-ordained roles for men and women in the home and in the church. In the, in the previous point, I reference Galatians chapter 3 and noted that in Christ Jesus we are spiritually equal. However, notice that being spiritually equal does not remove our different roles. Even in that passage, as, we, as it declares that we are one in Christ, but it says neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but when you are saved, those distinctions do not go away. We are one in Christ and yet we remain male and female. We're one in Christ, and yet we remain Jew or Greek. We're one in Christ, we, either, we remain either free or slave. Understanding that before the Lord spiritually we were equal, but in the created order of God, there are roles that God has ordained. Now, I want to give you at this point three contrary arguments to this biblical command. And the reason why I want to give these arguments is because I want you to hear them and understand the lies that they are. The first would be a, a practical argument. And that is that men are absent or unwilling to fulfill God's ordained roles, so women have stepped in. And frankly, the truth of it is, your experience probably testifies to this. That many churches function primarily by the service and the work of women more than men. I, I remember once in a very, very small church. I mean, when I say small church, membership of about 30, 40 people. And experienced some growth. And one of the men in the church gave testimony one time. And he said, I just praise God for the women around here. Because if it wouldn't be for y'all through some of the very, very lean years, there wouldn't be a church here anymore. But pragmatism is dangerous because it elevates what we can accomplish over what God has commanded. 
Pragmatism is what led Abraham and Sarah to have a child with Abraham and Hagar. Pragmatism is not always faithful to Scripture. It is a form of sin when elevated over Scripture. Listen to me carefully. This is a radical statement to say, but it must be heard. The church must choose obedience over pragmatism no matter the cost. You say, well, pastor, what if there were no men to stand in the pulpit to preach? Then let the pulpit be empty, but be obedient before the Lord. We cannot allow pragmatism to be elevated over the commands of Scripture. Secondly, a culture of egalitarianism. So this is the belief that there is no difference between men and women. That's where we're living today in our cultural context. This, this idea, it rejects the God-ordained roles as a violation of equality. So to say that there are roles and, 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 and God has created for us is, an, is, is, is offensive to the world because they, the, the, the egalitarian argument says, nope, there can be, there should be, there will not be any difference at all between men and women. This view elevates rights over the created order. It, it elevates cultural acceptance over biblical teaching. And friends, I would just say to you, the church is called to be biblically faithful, not culturally relevant. Listen, if you obey uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, you're going to be out of step with the, cultural, the world cultural around us. But that's what we're called to be, biblically faithful, not culturally relevant. Thirdly, a misuse of authority and specifically this passage. It may be that you have experienced someone using this passage unbiblically. And it, it leaves a bitter taste about this. Use of this passage to unbiblically diminish the role and value of women in the church. Use of this passage to unbiblically elevate the authority of men, particularly in other areas than the elder uh, preaching ministry of the church. Use of this, pastor, this passage to unbiblically restrict women beyond what this passage restricts. And so an, an effort to use this passage to silence women in other arenas of, of life. And when unfaithful men misuse the, this, uh, the Bible, the church must reject the false teachers, but not the Word of God. Listen to me carefully. There will always be false teachers. Almost every letter that Paul wrote to the church dealt with false teachers. And the response of the church is not to reject the, the Word. The, the response of the church must be to reject the false teacher and honor the Word. For all the church, obedience to God requires submission to God's ordained authority. God has restricted the role and authority of elders to men. That's what Paul is saying here. It may not be culturally acceptable, but it's what the Bible declares. God has restricted the role and authority of elders to men. Therefore, the ministry of preaching and teaching in the public worship of the church must only be by biblically qualified men. Women, you testify to your submission to God and his authority when you submit to those that God has placed in authority. Now, if that was the most controversial portion of this passage, the most difficult to understand is what comes next. So in verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but, woman, uh, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I would put this under the heading of honoring God's design. So in teaching what Paul has just taught us, about the proper order in church, particularly the authority of men in the pulpit of the, and, and the eldership, he now gives us a lesson from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that testifies to this dynamic of the proper order and the, and, and the design of God. You and I are called to honor God's design. So let me begin with a warning. When you reject God's order, it always leads to sin. 
If verses 9 and 10 are the most controversial, I've said this is probably, these verses are the most hard to understand and maybe the most often misunderstood. So Paul begins by pointing you back to the first three chapters of Genesis. And he says, Adam was created first. Eve was created after Adam. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. Now the modern reader immediately has questions and objections to this passage. And here's some of the questions you may be asking. Is this saying that Adam is more important than Eve? Or is this saying that Eve is less than Adam? Or was Eve the only one who sinned? And then the honest question is, isn't Adam guilty too? Paul points you to these first three chapters of Genesis to support the order of authority and submission given in verses 11 and 12. Paul references Genesis 1 and 2 to point out that that the difference in the role of men and women are not a result of the fall, but the perfect created order. Now, here is where some things get a little dicey. So some will take this passage and they'll say, well, the, the dynamic of men being in authority and women being in submissive, that's all because of Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse and and, and, and so it, that's, that's really a, not the, the, the design of God. But, but Paul points to Genesis 1 and 2. That's prior to the fall. And he recognizes that this created order was part of the original created order. And God declared of his creation, it is good. Verse 14 interprets the sin of Adam and Eve and the breakdown of God-ordained roles. This is what Paul is saying when he talks about Eve being deceived. That she assumed the role of the ultimate responsibility for which she was not well suited. She stepped out of the protection and leadership of Adam and was vulnerable, which led to her being deceived. And you say, what about Adam? Well, Adam abdicated his role of leadership and followed Eve. Both Eve and Adam violated and perverted God's order of authority. Now, because Adam was ultimately responsible, when the New Testament remembers this sin, the New Testament lays the guilt of this sin not on Eve, but on Adam. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the the resurrection of the dead. For as, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here's the point. You cannot honor God and reject his intended order and design. That sounds simple to say, but it is the rub right now for the modern church. Many today are trying to say, I want to be a faithful Christian, and yet I also want to be culturally relevant. But I'm saying to you, friends, you cannot honor God and reject his intended order and design. All sin has as its genesis in, has its genesis in the rejection of God's ordained order. When you step out of God's ordained order, you put yourself vulnerable for the destruction and the deception of sin. Obedience begins with submission to the order of God. So that leads us to verse 15. And how are we to handle this? Well, I'm going to encourage you to rejoice in the privilege of raising godly children. Verse 15 is a hard verse to understand. Uh, In part because Paul uses the word here, sozo. That's the word translated to be saved. And it sometimes, oftentimes, it is translated in the context of to be saved from our sins by the grace of God. 
It is used in the New Testament to refer to salvation in other forms. So in these ways, it would be used in the context of to preserve or to rescue or uh, to deliver or to set free. So again here, I think it's important to define what verse 15 is not saying. Paul is not saying that a woman's eternal salvation from sin is through bearing children. This would be in contrast uh, to the biblical witness that salvation comes through grace alone. This is not saying that God's design, desire for all women is to have children. That, that would be in violation of other passages in the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Where, where Paul celebrates those who are given the gift of singleness and choose not to marry, that they may give their full attention uh, to serving the Lord. And of course, we also know that God does not bless all, even those who marry with children. So it's not saying that, women, your salvation from your sin comes from, from childbearing. It's certainly not saying that all must marry. And I also, hear me carefully, I, I don't think this is saying, that th this passage is connected uh, to the promise made to Mary. Now, this may be a bit of an obscure tangent, but this is where I began when I began studying this passage, but it's not where I ended. So you may remember in Genesis chapter 3, when God uh, was bringing the curse of sin upon Adam and Eve, he, he cursed Eve Part of the curse of, of sin was painful childbirth. But just before where, where God gave that curse to Eve, God also pronounced a curse over the deceiver. And he said to the deceiver that a descendant of Eve would bruise, or some of your translations may say crush the, his head. So her descendant would, uh, would crush their head. And theologians point to that verse and say that's the very first testimony of the gospel in all of Scripture. We celebrate that. It was, a, it was a promise of God that there was coming a day that a descendant of Eve would conquer Satan. Now, we recognize that as Jesus. We praise God for that. And many when trying to understand what verse 15 is saying have, have thought, is this talking about Mary and that our salvation comes through one of Mary's, through the descendant of Mary, Jesus, which indeed is our salvation. Now, here's some reasons why I started there, but I didn't end there. Number one, I don't think the word sozo here means the salvation of grace from our sin. That's one reason. But, but secondly, in the text, we see two things that I think point us away from looking at Mary in this context. The first would be that it is plural. If they continue, so not speaking about Mary, but they, and then they continue. Continue is in the future tense. So speaking of the, in the plural and in the future, I think points us away from couching understanding verse 15 in the promise that God made to Mary. Which then leads us back, well, what in the world is Paul talking about? I believe what Paul is pointing us to is the tremendous privilege of raising godly children. It was Eve's deception. And he says in verse 14, it is also Eve and she became a transgressor. But then the hope is in verse 15 that that transgression and that deception, not redeemed in the sense of redemption that's in the Lord, redemption from sin, but, but, but redeemed in the sense of her testimony is made better by her work in the rearing of godly children. And so I think what he's pointing to is the tremendous privilege of raising children. By God's design, mothers hold the greatest influence over their children. God gave the gift. Now, in a world that's confused about gender and sexuality, I want to say something that, that is radically offensive to the world today. God gave the gift of childbearing only to women. Men, I don't care how much you desire otherwise, it's never going to be. That was a gift God gave uniquely according to the created good order of God to Eve and to women. God gave the gift of child rearing 
childbearing only to women. God gifted the, the uh, women with the special, uh, special abilities and skills in raising children. In the second letter to, to Timothy, Paul celebrates the godly upbringing of Timothy by his mom and his grandmother. Those are the two family members that he points to, Lois and Eunice, and encourages him to remain in the faith that he learned from them, just recognizing the tremendous influence that those two women had on Timothy the pastor. Eve may carry the shame of being deceived, but she and all who follow her have the redemptive opportunity to raise up the next generation to love the Lord. Women, God has given to you alone the privilege and gift of childbearing and the opportunity to influence the next generation for Christ. In order to be effective, Paul says, the Bible says, you must continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Honor God's design. I want to end today with a testimony about a woman whose writing and teaching greatly blessed me. It continues to bless me. She did not seek to be to seek, she did not seek the pastorate or to exercise authority over men in the church, but God used her teaching in other arenas and her writing to greatly bless many Christians. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. Her first husband was Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries speared to death by Indians deep in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956. Her book chronicling these events, uh, titled Through the Gates of Splendor, significantly influenced my early boyhood years. She, she pointed me to understand that, that the life of a Christian is not a life of consumerism, but a life of sacrifice. Later, my, my biblical understanding of Christian manhood was shaped by, by reading her book, The Mark of a Man. And she would, in most of her writing, in much of her writing, devote uh, much of her writing efforts to defining and defending a biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood in contrast to the secularizing forces attempting to redefine gender in violation of the Bible. When she died in, on June 15, 2015, John Piper wrote a tribute article about uh, Elliot and the impact of her ministry titled Peaches in Paradise, Why I Love Elizabeth Elliot. In that article, he recounted her life and many of the accomplishments she made and most of what he said in that article, I already knew. In the very end section of that article, he said something and revealed something about Elizabeth Elliot that was to be seen her whole life, but I had never ever picked up on. He said, she never fixed her teeth. She had a wide gap between her two front teeth. She could have easily afforded it to, to fix her teeth. She was a, notable, uh, a nationally sought-after speaker who regularly addressed large crowds. She could have certainly justified orthodontics to fix her teeth because she was in the public eye so much. No one would have ever questioned her, her motives or reasons uh, if she had gotten orthodontics to close the gap. It would not have been sin for her to, to do such. But she was not concerned with such things and never gave her attention to them. She adorned herself with good works. She appointed others to Jesus and not herself. She gave her attention to the greater and better things than personal appearance. Piper concluded his article with these words. Whether it was the spears of the Ecuadorian jungle or the standards of American glamour, she would not be coward. Do not fear anything that is frightening, she wrote. That is the mark of a daughter of Sarah. And in our culture, one of the most frightening things women face is not having the right figure, the right hair, the right clothes, or the right teeth. Elizabeth Elliot was free from that bondage. Finally, she wrote, we are women. And my plea is, let me be a woman holy through and through. 
asking for nothing but what, what God wants to give me, receiving with both hands and with all my heart, whatever that is. Elizabeth Elliot was a woman adorned with the beauty of good works and godliness. So much so that I never noticed in all of her life, in every picture that I saw of her and every book cover that I read, the imperfection of her teeth because her adornment of godliness and good works outshined it. Dear sisters, dear beloved sisters of the church, may you too seek to honor the Lord and adorn yourself with the beauty of godliness and good works. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.